electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan right now on Last Call. The not-so-magnificent seven, the market's biggest players rapidly losing their shine. Tech guru Dan Niles is here on what comes next. Ford hits the brakes after earnings. Can its new deal with the UAW lift its fortunes? Former Ford CEO Mark Fields is here with reaction. Should strikers get unemployment benefits? A controversial bill in Congress gains momentum. Sam Bankman-Fried on the stand, a wild day in court, sets the stage for even more fireworks. Intel surging on its latest results. We'll hear from CEO Pat Gelsinger. Plus, do you trust your weather app? How often does its prediction go wrong? That and much more over the hour. Last Call is up right now. Let's jump in. Developing news on one of the biggest companies on the planet, Amazon, beat earnings expectations. The company saw triple the profits in this last quarter to nearly $10 billion over what it saw the same quarter last year. It's cloud business, strong sales, shares of Amazon higher after hours, but then briefly falling in the red as well somewhat volatile. Meanwhile, we have watched a mega cap meltdown on Wall Street, which pushed the Nasdaq deeper into correction territory. We'll have more on that a bit later. First, let's dive deeper into Amazon's numbers. CNBC's Deirdre Bosa tuned in on the earnings call, just wrapped up a short time ago. What did you hear, Deirdre? Um, We heard lots of different things, Contessa, but this, remember, the current quarter that we are in, it is supposed to be the blockbuster quarter for Amazon, the end of the year, where holiday shopping really takes the focus. However, the past quarter, it was all about AWS, Amazon's cloud business. Wall Street really wanted to see how the company was doing on this front. And here's what CEO Andy Jassy had to say on the analyst call. AWS's year-over-year growth rate continued to stabilize in Q3. And while we still saw elevated cost optimization relative to a year ago, it's continued to attenuate as more companies transition to deploying net new workloads. Companies have moved more slowly in an uncertain economy in 2023 to complete deals, but we're seeing the pace and volume of closed deals pick up, and we're encouraged by the strong last couple of months of new deals signed. For perspective, we signed several new deals in September with an effective date in October that won't show up in any gap-reported number for Q3. That optimism, though, Contessa, it was at odds with what we heard just about an hour earlier from Amazon CFO Brian Olsowski. I asked him if he could say that cloud revenue growth had bottomed out, and he said he wouldn't characterize it that way. He said, we're in a delicate situation. We have cost optimization work that's starting to slow down. There are still companies that are joining that effort. 
And by the way, cost optimization is just another way of saying the companies are trying to cut their costs in the cloud. So Amazon shares in the after hour, as you said, they have been volatile as the street sorts through these different comments. On the plus side, though, margins improved in that cloud business and revenue growth was flat for AWS month over month. So while they didn't say it was a bottom, they didn't say it wasn't either. Guidance for the current quarter, however, it missed expectations too. And remember, that is for that all-important holiday quarter. The bar, though, I might say, was a little lower for Amazon because it has been a major underperformer compared to the other mega caps. We'll show you the chart. And Amazon is the bottom white line here. It's up about 50% since January, but over the last 12 months, it's only up 3%. So unlike some of the other mega caps that you mentioned have sort of taken down the market with them, Amazon could be seeing some upside because the bar was a little lower, up nearly 5% now. Although their cost-cutting measures, not just in cloud, but across the board, must be paying off because revenue was up 13%, and yet they've tripled the profit this quarter over what we saw last year. Where else could we continue to see those efforts pay off for Amazon? Yeah, it's a great question. And what they call cost optimization is also regionalization. Remember that Amazon built out its logistics system and network over the last few years, over the pandemic, and that has really allowed them to deliver packages faster and more efficiently. So they talked a lot about this on the call as well, that that's leading to more cost-cutting measures, more profitability. And on that profitability front, the guidance looked good. They were guiding operating profit above what the street was expecting. So you can continue to see that trickle through. But let me just say that the cloud business, that's the real profit engine. And that's why it matters so much. Deirdre, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And again, those shares of Amazon popping after hours. Uh, the company and other big tech names, though, recently have just gotten clobbered on Wall Street because earnings have failed to reassure investors. Take a look at the now not so magnificent seven. You've got Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Meta firmly in correction territory. Look at NVIDIA down almost to bear market uh, space, down more than 10% from their recent highs. Meantime, this year's darling on Wall Street, NVIDIA, as I, I said, nearing bear market territory. The biggest loser, Tesla, down more than 30% from this year's high. For more on this, let's talk to the man who called the S&P correction in August and warned specifically on Apple and Tesla. And I know you shorted those stocks. Satori Fund founder and portfolio manager, Dan Niles, thank you for joining us here on Last Call. First, what do you make of, of Amazon's earnings in this case about the tripling of profit and their efforts on the cost optimization, as Deirdre said? Well, uh, Contessa, thanks for having me on. I think the profit picture is what I'm focused on. I know investors are focused on AWS, but if you look at it, AWS as a percentage of revenues is high teens. Their consumer retail business is 70% of revenues. And so if you can get that profitability moving, that's how you end up with great things like free cash flow. So for us, the fact that they beat operating income by you know almost 40%, um, that's what's important because that's the ultimate driver going forward. Obviously, Azure is very important because that's the profit engine right now, um, but Azure also stabilized. So for us, it's one of the names we had posted that we liked into the quarter. Uh, we own it, um, don't plan on selling it right now. It does bother me a bit that people are so hyper-focused on 16, 17% of revenues when they should be focused on 70% of their revenues. But you know, it, it's something that we'll think through, but 
it I think was very good in terms of at least the revenue growth stabilizing at 12 percent for Azure. Okay, so when you're looking, you had bought Amazon on all of the retail optimism, even with your concerns over AWS growth. Is there another in this magnificent magnificent seven that you would buy at this point? Well, you know, the good news is that we've gone through earnings. We've gotten to see what some of them did. Um, Meta is one that we didn't own going into earnings. As we said on the our October 10th preview, we owned uh, Google, and which was obviously terrible, and we got rid of that one um, because we didn't like their operating income, much the reverse of what you saw at Meta, where Meta beat revenues, but they absolutely crushed operating profits. And so that's the one that we'd probably like to go back to. We still own NVIDIA because the stock's gotten a lot cheaper. Um, obviously, the estimates went up a lot. The stocks come in. And so if you look at it relative to next year, you're paying 26 times for revenues that's growing over 50%. And so um, you know that, those are the ones that we're looking at. Oracle's not in the Magnificent Seven, so to speak. But I think if you're looking for growth at a reasonable price, you're getting a, a company at a 20 PE that's picking up share very rapidly. And on the Microsoft call, Satya talked a lot about their relationship with Oracle and how that was helping to unlock demand. And so that's the other one I throw in there uh, right now that we're interested in. Do you think that the notion of the Magnificent Seven is somewhat passe at this point? <laughs> well, I mean, I've said this multiple times on CNBC, the, you're going to have to pick stocks because now I think the market's acting rationally where you can't throw everything in a bucket and then money chasing it because the Fed has been put into a box, which they haven't been in for over 15 years ever since the global financial crisis. You can't keep throwing money when you've got this kind of inflation. And don't forget, CPI is at 3.7%. When it's that high, the S&P 500 has a normal trailing PE of 17 and a half times. It's sitting at 19. So you could get another 10% correction in the S&P. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but you could easily get that just to get back to an average valuation mm. at this kind of inflation level. So things like earnings, things like cash flow, things like margins, all of that stuff matters versus some great story that you have to tell. And don't forget, we have Apple coming up, speaking of yeah. great stories. And that, that stock to me well, makes the sense of all with the valuation it has relative to no revenue growth. So you shorted Apple and Tesla. Yeah, we, we've covered both of them, to be clear. We did that. We actually covered our Apple today. We're waiting for it to rally. We thought Amazon would be good. We thought it'd be good to take it off. We'll wait for it to rally and then probably put that short back on, just like with Tesla. Um, we only actually have one short on at the end of the day today, and it's very small to speak of. Dan Niles. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Meantime, here are your studs and duds. The biggest winner of the day was global advisory firm Willis Towers Watson up more than 10%. And for the biggest loser, the company behind Invisalign Teeth Straightener Align Technology, down almost 25. Let's take a look at the futures too and see how things are shaping up. Hey, pretty good. The S&P 500 up half a percentage point after the NASDAQ composite slipped further into correction territory. You can see the futures up there, three quarters of a percent, and the Dow Jones indicated higher by a third right now. Up next, Ford takes a hard turn into the red after earnings. Wait until you hear what its executives say about the new deal with the UAW. Former Ford CEO Mark Fields is here with reaction. 
Plus, SBF on the stand, the disgraced crypto mogul may just have sealed his fate. Stay with us. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back. Ford reported earnings after the bell just a day after announcing a deal with the United Auto Workers Union. And the stock is taking a hit after hours. CNBC's Phil LeBeau joins us now with more. Phil? And Contessa, this was an underwhelming earnings report for the third quarter from Ford. They missed on the top and the bottom line. Not by a lot, but it was a miss. Two reasons. One, they continue to have issue with warranty costs. And the other issue is the cost of the UAW strike in the third quarter, which wasn't a lot, but it was there. So you put those two together and you have a company that did miss in the third quarter. By the way, the strike is cost Ford. They believe it will ultimately cost $1.3 billion. That contract will add, in their estimation, $850 to $900 per vehicle to the cost of a vehicle. And then there's the question of what's happening with the EV program, because they've already said that they plan on deferring their investments as much as possible while the market cools off for EVs in this country. During the conference call tonight, they were asked about that. They're going to push out about $12 billion in EV investment. And there you see that the EV division losing $1.3 billion in the third quarter. They're still making money with internal combustion and their commercial vehicles. Those two businesses... They're going great. It's the issue with the Model E and the investments in EVs. By the way, as you take a look at GM, Ford, and Stellantis, keep in mind that Ford did get the UAW to agree to a contract with a 25% pay increase over the next four and a half years. As for GM and Stellantis, those discussions continue, but Contessa, most believe we're probably going to see contracts ultimately signed that are very similar to what Ford signed with the UAW. All right, so Phil, stay with me. I want you to be part of this conversation. Let's bring in former Ford CEO and CNBC contributor Mark Fields. Mark, good of you to join us today. How much pressure does this put on the leadership teams at Stellantis and GM to also get a deal done? Well, it puts a lot of pressure on them, right? I think it, I think in this case, although it wasn't the contract that, that Ford wanted in terms of the richness of the economics, you know, Ford has led these negotiations most of the way, right, in terms of putting on the most generous offer up front. And listen, in, in, in negotiations, it's really all about you want to be first because you want to not have to follow others. And in the case of GM and Stellantis, you know, it's kind of like being in a relay race, right? 
the last leg. Ford has the baton. They're running. Now GM and Stellantis are, you know, they want to get going because they don't want to lose out on production and, and market share. But listen, at, at the end of the day, I think, you know, Sean Fain, the head of the UAW, he blew up the, you know, traditional pattern bargaining approach. But the, the place they're going to end up is very similar contracts. So the same result. Phil? Hey, Mark, it's Phil. I have a question for you. Uh, they're estimating that this contract will add 850 to $900 to the cost of every vehicle that they're building. Now, you can't pass that all on to the customer. They're hoping to take some of that out through greater efficiencies, cost cutting. But you ran Ford. It, you know it's not easy to strip out the cost uh, when you're building a vehicle. How tough is it? Well, Phil, as you know, the auto industry, it's, it's all about, you know, getting scale economies and pennies count, right? Because, you know, it gets into the cost of the vehicle. You're producing millions of them. Listen, at the end of the day, as you said, part of this cost is going to be passed on to the consumer, right? Just like, you know, when you go and ship a UPS package, it's going to cost you more because of their contract. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to work and grind it out in terms of look at efficiencies in the system, look at their GNA costs to try and take out as much as they can. Because, listen, as you saw from the results earlier, the ICE business really funds the EV business at this point. And so, you know, you got to keep that that golden goose, keep producing for them. So they're going to have a very intense focus on this. And ultimately, you know, they're going to it's going to wind their way into product decisions going forward in terms of where they where they produce some products. What might have been, you know, producing uh, in the U.S. maybe three or four years from now, they might rethink that. But uh, they're going to grind it out and uh, they're going to pass some of this on to the consumer in terms of pricing. You mentioned that Sean Fang sort of blew up the model for negotiating and for calling the strike. What grade would you give him, Mark? And and do you think this changes forever the labor tension, the way that labor unions go in to negotiate with management? Well, you know, we're in a point in time, right, where we've had a lot of inflation. Uh, we're going through an economic slowdown, et cetera. So part of it is, you know, horses for courses, right, where you are in a point of time. I think, you know, the, you know, in terms of the, the grade for Sean Fain, I mean, listen, he's, he's gotten a record contract for, uh, for his rank and file. But I think that's the short-term look. It's really the long-term look of, you know, how are these business positioned competitively, right, to continue to grow the base of the rank and file? Because that's the business model for yeah. the union going forward. They want more members. Uh, but, you know, overall, he, you know, he's done a very effective job by you know, breaking, uh, you know, past practices. Uh, and at the t same time, at least for, you know, the automakers and particularly Ford, because they've led in this, at least they were able to shape the contract as best they can uh, for their situation, which now others are going to have to follow. We heard in Ford's report that the Model E electric vehicle unit lost $1.3 billion. Some other major EV news this week. First, the chairman of Toyota was commenting on the potential industry switch to EVs. And he said to reporters yesterday, people are finally seeing reality. There are many ways to climb the mountain that is achieving carbon neutrality. And then there was more EV news from Honda and GM scrapping plans to co-develop affordable electric cars. That partnership expected to produce an electric car that would cost less than $30,000. It was slated for a 2027 release. The initiative launched just last year to a lot of fanfare, $5 billion capital commitment. 
Mark, is it too late to reverse course for all of this EV industry, so much enthusiasm, so much committed dollars? Well, I think over time you're going to see the industry propulsion system shift from, from internal combustion engines to full uh, battery electric. Right to your point, the issue is, you know, what's the time frame for that? And what you're seeing when you, you know, there's a lot of excitement around the early adopters and what does that mean for growth going forward? Now you're getting to the tough part of mass adoption. And I think in the case of Toyota and in the case of Ford, they've been pretty smart in saying, listen, we're going to invest in EVs, but at the same time, we're going to invest in hybrids, which if you think about it, you know, hybrids and plug-in hybrids are a great transition for consumers. And also they're very good for, you know, reducing CO2 and helping the environment. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, at at, at the end of the day, we're, we're going to be going towards a full EV future. But you're seeing the manufacturers like Ford and others now starting to say, hey, the growth is not there as we expect. So we're going to push out our capital expenditures and at the same time invest in hybrids um, to give the consumer a choice. And I think that's a smart move by both Toyota and Ford. Phil, your final thought here. Uh, I'm curious to see how long it takes for GM and Stellantis to get a contract. You know, Mark. I've covered a number of the contracts in the past when you were running Ford and when you were an executive underneath uh, different CEOs. And, and, you know, usually there's about a week or two weeks between one contract to the next to the next. I get the feeling that may not be the pattern this time around. What do you think? I think this is going to fall very quickly. I would be surprised if we don't have another agreement by the weekend with one of the other automakers and maybe through midweek next week. I Mm -hmm. think this is going to happen very fast. And the key issue, right, is around ratification. And, you know, there's always a little uneasiness about this. But I don't think this is going to be a nail-biter in the case of the, the Ford contract. I think, you know, uh, because of the transparency around what they've been able to get, I think they're going to get a healthy majority of approval on this. Mark Fields, thank you very much for joining us. Phil, it sounds like you need a little tea, lemon, honey. Go get that. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> is you. Is that Texas ragweed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bet. Still ahead, a blockbuster appearance by Sam Bankman-Fried on the witness stand. And CNBC's Kate Rooney was there. Kate. Hi, Contessa. So call it a courtroom dress rehearsal. Sam Bankman-Fried took the stand today for cross-examination before just the judge. There was no jury in that room. More on that and what you can expect in this case tomorrow. It's coming up next after this break. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back. It was the biggest moment of the blockbuster crypto trial yet. Sam Bankman-Fried taking the stand. It may not matter to the jury. CNBC's Kate Rooney is live outside the courthouse for us. Kate, what was the impact of what we heard from Sam today? Contestant, well, we're just starting to hear from Sam Bankman-Fried. He's starting to tell his side of the story in the criminal case. He took the stand, though, today without a jury present. So the judge could decide if certain topics are admissible, including the role of his FTX lawyers at the time. The defense team kicked things off questioning Bankman Freed. They tried to really place the blame on some of his corporate lawyers at FTX, namely 
Dan Friedberg saying that he signed off on bank accounts and misused customer money in the Bankman Freed today said he thought that this was allowed in the terms of service that was written by the lawyers. For Portion, though, today he was sounding calm. He was giving short, clear answers, contested. That was not the case when the prosecution started their cross-examination. He stumbled, he stalled to take a sip of his water at multiple points, asked for a lot of clarification in the question, said that he couldn't remember a lot of things. And then instead of saying things like just no, simply no, he would respond with things like, I would not classify that as particularly what happened. So a roundabout way of answering the judge repeatedly told him, listen to the questions and answer the question directly. He seemed frustrated with some of the diversions. He also noted sarcastically the defendant has what he called an interesting way of answering questions. Bankman Fried is testifying. It is a risky strategy. He's going to face a lot more questioning from the government under oath tomorrow and likely next week if he is found guilty and if the judge suspects that Bankman Fried lied at any point on the stand. It could add years to his sentence. There has already been a lot of tension between Bankman Fried and the judge here, Judge Kaplan. Over the summer, for example, he revoked Sam Bankman Fried's bail, accusing him of witness tampering. The upside that he's betting on here, potentially persuading at least one juror that he did not have criminal intent. That's all he needs for a hung jury, Contessa. Led up to this, I, I don't know if it's a practice session, but it seems like he's getting a little experience being on the stand before actually taking the stand before jurors. What, what led to that? So part of this is an argument over what they can bring in front of the jury. And they said the judge overnight is going to decide if any of this is something that they can bring to the jury and present to the jury. But you're right, it was a little bit of a practice session. He seemed quite prepared when his defense team got up there and started questioning him like he knew what was coming. He knew the order of operations and he was prepared way less so when it came to the cross-examination and prosecution. He really seemed to stammer and lose his concentration a few times. And it is a bit of a, a preview of what we'll likely hear in the coming weeks. And he had a much harder time with the cross-examination, which is one of the big risks here. He's very, very much exposed when the government side is asking questions. And he's live. I mean, he's under oath at this point. So big risk here. Kate, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Let's get to Mark Litt on this. He's an expert on white-collar crime and a partner at Wachell Misery Law Firm. He was the lead prosecutor in the case against the infamous Ponzi schemer, Bernie Madoff. It's good to talk to you today, Mark. Can lawyers for Sam Bankman-Fried now decide they didn't like what they saw of him on the stand today and decide not to have him testify? I think they could. Um, I don't think the jury yet knows that he was planning to testify. Uh, so they can do that up to the last minute. And, and why would you think that it would be that he would be so calm and composed with his defense attorneys doing the questioning, but then when prosecutors take over, what Kate has been reporting today is that it seemed like he kind of fell apart. Well, that's, that's always the case. Uh, whoever's putting on a witness, whether it's the government uh, in a prosecution or the defense lawyer, they have an opportunity to work with their witnesses in advance. Uh, it's not like writing a, a script for a movie or a play, but you do go through the topics and the questions and people get comfortable as to what's going to be asked and uh, they get a little coaching on how to answer the question. You don't have that opportunity when somebody you've never met before uh, has you on the stand and is asking you questions. So that's typical. Do you see comparisons here, reminders of what you experienced prosecuting Bernie Madoff? Well, not certainly not with respect to this. I mean, of course, uh, Mr. Madoff pled guilty 
There was no trial, um, but I had lots of other trials in the past. Um, this was a little bit unusual today that a judge would devote a whole day to essentially have this kind of practice session. Usually, uh, lawyers handle this. A, a judge will ask, well, what's the witness going to say? Uh, and you get a proffer from the lawyer, and the judge decides based on competing proffers and arguments from lawyers as to what testimony comes in and what doesn't. Or if you're in the middle of trial and a witness is testifying, you might excuse the, the jury for a few minutes, ask a few questions, and then the judge makes a decision. This was very unusual, and I think it gives somewhat of an advantage to uh, Bankman Freed because to the extent he did fall apart today, he didn't do it in front of a jury. Jury will never know about it. And overnight, it's hard when you're detained, but still his lawyers can try to work with him uh, to get him to sharpen up some of his responses. I sat on a criminal jury once uh, and I saw the way that prosecutors could build the case and lead you down a path and make you think, oh, well, this is clear. And then the defense gets up and introduces other questions and other witnesses and, and shows you where you might have doubts. But the strength of the testimony to this point has been so strong. And, and so many of Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle have already pled guilty at, at, and shared their testimony and pretty damning testimony, not the least of which was Carolyn Ellison, who was his former girlfriend. When you look at the strength of that testimony, was there any way for the defense to come out ahead without putting him on the stand? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, through cross-examination, look, there are always two sides to a story. That's why we have trials. That's why we have cross-examination to try to get to the, the truth of the matter. Um, and, you know, the defense counsel took their shots at various witnesses um, from the reporting. Most of those shots didn't land. And the proof is a little bit in the pudding here, because if, if the defense were confident that they were ahead at this point. Yeah. And by ahead, I mean either they were heading toward an acquittal or a hung jury, meaning persuading either all the jurors or one uh, that the defendant was, was not guilty. They wouldn't be taking the risks associated with putting him on the stand. Um, they must think that they're behind uh, and fairly far behind. And people say, well, this is a Hail Mary. I think you can call it a Hail Mary, but it's a very, it's a logical Hail Mary. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a wrong decision. Um, if you're behind, you got to swing for the fence a little bit. Uh, thank you very much. It sounds like uh, we're missing out by not being in the actual courtroom and hearing some of this uh, unfold in front of us. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Still ahead, Intel shares on a tear after earnings. We'll hear from CEO Pat Gelsinger after this. It's time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. Chipotle Mexican Grill posted strong earnings after the bell. The fast casual chain beat expectations. It overcame rising costs by raising menu prices. Shares of Chipotle jumping after hours up almost 2%. Chipotle opened 62 new restaurants during the quarter and expects to open as many as 315 in 2024. With a big focus on drive-through Chipotle lanes. 
That's their words. Next, a very opposite picture for Enphase Energy. The solar and battery company just reported earnings as well, a revenue miss and disappointing outlook for the rest of the year. That has shares nosediving after hours, down more than 16% to a three-year low. Enphase blames a slowing U.S. economy and softening demand in Europe for the rough forecast. And we have a major update to the billionaires list. Maybe this is called Taylor's version. Taylor Swift's net worth has now surpassed $1 billion, thanks in large part to the massive success of her Eras tour. That's according to Bloomberg. Swift's 53 concerts this year reportedly added $4.3 billion to the U.S. economy. The average ticket cost $254, but many fans spent much, much more on the secondary market. Amazon isn't the only tech company with an earnings beat today. Shares of Intel are surging after hours. The company said it's expecting a big rebound in orders for its chips. And John Fort just spoke to Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger a short time ago. We had great financial results, but we really had outstanding operational results. And we saw that really across, you know, delivering of the new products on or ahead of schedule. We saw that in the fab operations as our five nodes in four years. We executed that very well. We talked about the internal foundry model, you know, and how that's uh, starting to really take effect at bringing improved uh, leverage into the business with cost savings. You can catch that full interview with Pat Gelsinger tomorrow on CNBC. But for more intel on Intel's earnings, let's bring in CNBC's Christina Partzinevelis. Christina, what's the biggest thing that you heard from the not only from the results, but from the call? Well, I I, to say the biggest thing for a lot of investors right now is that this report wasn't as bad as expected, although the bar has been set pretty low for Intel just after years of product delays and spending issues and demand weakness. But to answer your question, it's probably personal computer sales, PC sales that are starting to improve. Global PC shipments actually have been declining for the last eight consecutive quarters. But new Gardner research shows that growth is actually going to improve in Q4. And that's a big part of why Intel also issued a strong Q4 outlook. And most notably, an improvement in gross margins. And we're gonna show you this graph, take a look at it. You see steep declines from 2021 on the left side of your screen, but now we're seeing two quarters of improvement, which could signal maybe, maybe a bottom is in. We though, we can't ignore that Intel sales still declined for seven consecutive quarters and data center sales were weaker than expected. On the earnings call tonight that I was listening to, Gelsinger did say there was this wallet shift that continued from PC chips towards GPU chips, those graphic processing chips used for AI systems. But he says that should start normalizing again in Q4. Other takeaways from the earnings report, the company cut costs, which is helping operating margins. They signed two new foundry customers and are still on track to build these five new manufacturing processes in the next four years so they can be at the same level as Taiwan Semiconductor by 2025. Sales, though, still declining, but this report shows big improvement as we hit two years into Pat Gelsinger's turnaround plan for Intel. Christina, thank you for the wrap-up. Coming up, should workers on strike get unemployment benefits? A controversial new push in Congress, and one of the lawmakers leading that charge joins us next.
Oye, are we seeing a lot of labor unrest across the United States? So far in 2023, major strikes and walkouts from the United Auto Workers, the Actors and the Writers Unions, Kaiser Permanente, among others. With tens of thousands of union members that are still out of work, Congress is looking to take action. A group of nearly 40 House lawmakers are putting forward the Empowering Striking Workers Act. It would grant all striking workers access to unemployment benefits starting 14 days after walking out. Right now, only New York and New Jersey allow unemployment benefits for striking workers. Now, the bill could face some challenges. California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a similar bill last month that would apply to workers in that state. He said, quote, now is not the time to increase costs or incur this sizable debt. He said it would be nearly $20 billion in debt by the end of the year anyway. Joining me now, one of the House members that put their name behind the legislation, California Congressman Jimmy Gomez. Congressman, great to see you. Were you disappointed by your governor's actions in California? I was, because um, I served in the California legislate, uh, legislature. I was uh, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, and I also was a union organizer um, as well before I ever got elected. So I know that this would have helped level the playing field for workers in California. But I recognize some of his constraints when it comes to the budget, when it comes to funding uh, the unemployment fund, but there is ways to do it that could make sure that it protects workers in the long term. Um, I'm disappointed, but I know California, the members are going to reintroduce that bill, try to work on it, try to get something that is uh, closer to what he envisions, and I think that they'll probably get something done next year or the year after. There are many, many hardworking Americans who are not part of a union, and if they were to go out and walk off their job to try and make a point to their boss, they just would not get paid. You don't get paid unemployment benefits if you quit. Why do you think the American taxpayers should pay striking workers to do that? Well, first, um, one of the things that we know is that um, the playing field when it comes between the power of an employer and the power of a worker is completely lopsided. I believe in a, a people's right to join a union. I believe in the right and the power of collective action. That's what unions are about. I hope those individuals that are not in a union, that want to seek better wages, uh, better benefits, and have a secure future, that they do organize and join a union. Um, and that would apply to them as well. Because we know one thing, that wages have been stagnant in this country since the 1970s, only gone up about 17%. Although productivity has skyrocketed, corporate profits have skyrocketed, but the cost of living has also gone up. So this will just allow these workers to have a more level paying field so that uh, uh, an employer can't outweigh you, try to bankrupt you, try to make sure that you, you go on the, on the food, uh, you know, go to the food banks to get your, your food. So we know that this will help. Um, New York does it. New Jersey does it. The, fall, the sky hasn't fallen in over in those two states. Uh, do, you do you think this has a shot at passing? I mean, we've just seen you know, a very messy resolution to the Republican uh, election of leadership in the House. What are the chances that a bill like this gets through? Yeah, well, the Republicans haven't even passed hardly anything since the beginning of the year. They have zero pieces of legislation that have passed 
the House. So that uh, kind of tells you that it, uh, Congress under the Republican majority is barely functioning. So, but we, we're going to try to um, get this bill heard. We're going to try to push it forward. But when we're in the minority, they, uh, the Republicans and the, and the Republican majority controls the, the agenda setting. And that's what they're going to do. So um, if we can't get it done this year or next year, hopefully when Democrats are in control in 2020, five will be able to bring it up or at least get a hearing on this piece of legislation. And, and do you have any predictions about when we might see the actors joining the writers in res resolving their strike? One thing I know for sure is that uh, workers never go on strike lightly. They know that it's going to impact not only um, their bottom line, but their uh, business, the, the work, their employer's bottom line, and it just has yeah. a big ripple effect. Congressman, uh, but they do it as a, a as a last resort. So I hope that gets to resolve sooner or later, and they achieved a, a fair and beneficial contract for the workers as well as the employers. Congressman Gomez, thank you very much for that. Let's get to the watch list now. First up, a bit of a gold rush on our hands, thanks to stock market slide. Gold now trading higher on the year than the S and P 500. It's up more than nine percent while the S&P is up nearly eight. Generac having yet another down day, ninth in a row. The generator company is trading at lows not seen since April 2020. There you see off 2% over the past month. Shares of Generac have fallen 20%. And you have to pick up that generator at Home Depot, which also saw its shares drop today. Eight straight negative session. It's been a rough September and October for Home Depot investors. The company now in the red on the year by about 12%. Let's get a quick check on futures. It was a busy afternoon stretching into evening here on the East Coast of earnings. And there you're seeing them. The S&P 500 up half a percent. The Dow Jones indicated up a third of a percent. And the NASDAQ up 8% after falling into correction territory. Coming up, admit it, your weather app stinks. Probably getting worse. The question is why, finally? There may be an answer, but is an answer going to keep you drier in the rain? That's my question. Next. Welcome back. Our phones or the apps on them have the power to so completely control our lives they can make the difference between being drenched for the day, stranded in a snowstorm, or late for work because you needed to return home to dress more appropriately for the weather outside. You know, we look at the weather app, and it predicts, say, light rain when actually it's pouring outside. I use the Apple weather app, and its accuracy is frequently up in the air. Apparently, it is such a widespread experience that Alex Abad-Santos wrote about it for Vox, his piece titled, why Apple's weather app is so bad. Alex joins me. Why is it so bad? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think it's, a, it's not bad on purpose. And I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that like in the general scheme of things, like it gets temperature right. It gets like, oh, it's going to be raining or if it's going to be sunny, it gets that right. But it's like really bad on specific. I see how it is. Now you're prevaricating. Now you've written the article. <laughs> you have figured it out. I, I want to just say. Oh, no, 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 no. Like okay. it's like, like when I want to go out, like uh, for the last seven weekends in New York, it's been raining 
raining nonstop on the weekends and stopping like right on Monday morning. And what I think what I use the app for is like, is it raining like at this minute? And it's like, sometimes it'll tell me yes, sometimes it'll tell me no. And then you can't rely on it to uh, tell you when it's going to stop. So I think that is the main problem when we say like, it's so bad is that we really want like the precise minutes of like, can we go outside? Can we like, do we need to put on boots? Do we need to like plan our whole day around this? Well, you talked to a local meteorologist who explained that, you know, it, the, the models that this uses may push the weather faster than it actually goes. Maybe the rain lingers more. And then you talked to somebody else at the uh, University of or San Francisco State University professor that says, hey, they all are using data that comes in from the National Weather Service. Whatever model, whatever website you go to, this is why a meteorologist actually interpreting the data for you locally matters. My question for you is this interesting notion of it's not forecasting anymore. We all demand now casting. We want to know <laughs> now what the weather is going to be, not just next weekend, but actually right now. Why don't we just look out the window? Because it's like, I think with the now casting, it's like you can put like a bicycle in your garage, right? Like it's like that is really helpful for people in our day to day lives. Um, when the weather, the National Weather Service puts out like an advisory, they're more thinking about like, are there economic or big government things that are happening that could like are relying on the weather or is there a hurricane coming? But I think like for, for everyday people, we're just like, yes, I want to know when it's going to start, when the rain's going to start, when it's going to stop. I want to know how much rain is happening. I want to be able to plan my day. And it's kind of frustrating for us that we can't. And it's, I think we're all at the mercy of an algorithm um, that doesn't really take into account like the human factor of this all. I won't lie. I will say to the boys, hey, guys, you're going to need your umbrella. And my husband looks at his phone. He's like, <laughs> but the app says it's not raining right now. And I'm like, open the blinds. Open the blinds. Alex, thank you for the great article. Appreciate you. 39 years ago tonight, the Terminator hit movie screens and launched a whole franchise to say nothing of the eventual governator. I'll be back. And he was over and over in the sequels. The Terminator was the top movie in 1984, dominating the box office. The movie established James Cameron as a bankable filmmaker. He'd only directed one feature film prior to The Terminator. And fast forward to today, The Terminator has become one of the most successful movie franchises ever. In total, the six films have banked, are you ready for this, more than $2 billion at the global box office. That is your last call for tonight. Shark Tank is next. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.